John chapter 2 is our passage. Take your Bible out so you can follow along. We're not going to reread all of these verses together at once, but we are going to walk back through them this morning. This is a great story, the first of Jesus' signs. And I want to put a few details in place before we jump in and, and work our way through the passage. Let's start with Cana, the city of Cana. It was a small village about nine miles north of Nazareth in Galilee. And so I'm just going to show you a couple of maps just to sort of orient you to what we're talking about here. This first map shows you, uh, you could say, Palestine in Jesus' day. And you can see the regions that this area had been broken up into. Judea down in the south, then Samaria is going to come into play in a couple of weeks, and up north is Galilee. Judea was where all the action was. You can see down there right above that red circle that says Judea, uh, there's Bethlehem and there is Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the capital. It was the center of activity. It was where the intelligentsia lived. It was where the power brokers lived. Galilee was what we would call the day flyover country, okay? Not that important. In fact, when people thought about Galilee, they sort of had the mindset, that's where the hillbillies live. That's where the rednecks live. That's where the people whose vote doesn't count live. They're one of us, eh, but they're not exactly like us. They're different than us, and they're just up there. They're sort of like that uncle you're a little bit embarrassed of, right? He lives up in Galilee, and he comes down every now and then, and he just he seems uncivilized. He doesn't seem like he knows what's going on. That was Galilee. Cana is up in Galilee, and I'll show you another map that zooms in on, on the redneck district here. You see Nazareth down in the south. That's where Jesus grew up. Cana is just a few miles north. So when Jesus performs this sign in Cana, he's in his home area, right? He's, he's around people who knew him and his family. These are not big cities. These are small villages, Several hundred people living in each of these small villages. Capernaum, I circled, over by the Sea of Galilee was a little bit bigger. It was sort of a commercial center. That becomes Jesus' home base of ministry a little bit later. But this just sort of gives you an idea where Cana was. It was not a well-respected city. It was not a, a city that people thought highly of. And that's where Jesus chooses to perform this first sign. I also want you to notice the fact that Mary is not named in this passage, nor is she named, Jesus' mother Mary, at any point in the Gospel of John. She's part of the story. We read about Jesus' mother, but she's not referred to as Mary. Mary, in this Gospel, almost always refers to Mary Magdalene. And scholars debate, why didn't John just name Mary. Why did he use more ink to spell out Jesus' mother when he could have just put Mary and everyone would have known who he was talking about? Some speculate maybe there was a, a relational issue there and he was mad at Mary. I think that makes absolutely no sense. John was the one who took care of Mary after Jesus died on the cross. He took her in and, and cared for her. So he loved her. He cared about her. He knew her. Some say, well, maybe he wrote so much later than everyone else, he realized that Mary was beginning to get a reputation that was bigger than she deserved. And so he doesn't mention her here by name. He just calls her Jesus' mother. Some say, no, it's none of those things. It's just a, a clarity issue. 
We've talked about in this gospel, when we read the name John, it's always John the Baptist. It always refers to one particular John. And in this gospel, almost every time you read Mary, it refers to one particular Mary. So whatever reason you want to pick, I just want you to notice, Mary is not named even though she's part of the story. Third, John uses the word signs to describe Jesus's miracles. There's lots of different words in the New Testament for miracles, signs and wonders and uh, all sorts of different things used. John likes signs. And it goes back to the passage that we looked at the very first week in our study through the Gospel of John. We talked about John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. For John, the author of this gospel, the point of a sign is not just that you would say, wow, how cool is that? He turned water into wine. Really, really powerful stuff. The sign always points you beyond the miracle itself to some important truth about Jesus. Every time he he performs a sign, don't get caught up too much in the sign itself, but start to think, what is this sign teaching me about Jesus? Right? It's literally like a sign post pointing you, saying, hey, Jesus did this, but this is why he did it, and this is what you need to know about Jesus. And so John always calls these miracles signs, and he writes them down so that we would believe. The big idea relates to this first sign. The big idea is this. Jesus is the true bridegroom who ushers in the new covenant. Jesus is the true bridegroom who ushers in the new covenant. Look, I know that's churchy language. I know for a lot of us that doesn't just make a whole lot of sense. But that's the point of the sign. And if it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us, we may need to think harder and more, more critically about the Bible and the story rather than just try to water it down to something that really isn't the point. And the point here is obviously this. Jesus is the true bridegroom, and he comes to usher in the new covenant. In the Bible, you see this idea. Jesus is referred to multiple times as the bridegroom. That's an old English word for groom. And there's a linguistic reason why they attached bride and groom. I think it's confusing. You think it's confusing. It just means groom, okay? Jesus is the groom. He has come for his bride. The bride is his church, his people. The groom has come. He's come to gather his church together. And there's going to be a new relationship, a new covenant And Jesus is the one who ushers all of that in. This very first sign is like big neon letters. And it's saying to you, the groom has come. The bride needs to get ready. And there's going to be a new relationship between God and his people. All of that is spelled out in a story about a wedding. And the wedding takes place in Cana in Galilee. It's a wedding where something went very, very wrong. How many of you have been to a wedding where something went wrong? Maybe I should say, how many of you have been to a wedding where nothing went wrong? That would probably be fewer of us. Let me tell you a couple of wedding stories. Uh, My dad's parents, Laverna and Bill, when they got married, they had a double wedding. And so 
my grandma, Laverna, is marrying Bill, and her sister, Louise, is marrying a guy named Ed. Okay? This side of our family is all Catholic, so they have a Catholic ceremony, and they have a double wedding, and they're just both up there together. They had the same friends, so the wedding party was the same for both groups, and you got a bride and a groom and a bride and a groom all at the front. I don't know how many Catholic weddings you've been to. Um, I don't mean this in any negative way, but they're long, okay? They're long. And I also know this about weddings. Even in short weddings, nobody's paying attention to anything that gets said in a wedding. No one is listening to anything. I could stand up in a wedding, and I could say the most ridiculous things, and you all would just sit out there and smile. All you're thinking is, look how pretty she looks. Is this over yet? Can we go to the party? Why is this taking so long? Okay, so Catholic wedding, you got two couples. I've never performed a double wedding. But I'm guessing, based on my family history here, it's pretty important to keep the name straight in the ceremony. Okay? So you got a long wedding. This is back in the olden times. I'm not saying my grandma's old, but she's old. It's back in the olden times. I don't know what the microphone situation was. Nobody's paying attention. The priest is up there talking. He said a lot of stuff. Everyone's tuned out, and he gets to the part of the service where he's going to do vows. And so he looks down, and he starts with my granddad, Bill. And he says, Bill, do you take Louise to be your lawfully wedded wife? Now, here's the funny part. No one heard him say that. No one laughed. No one went, oh, he got it wrong. No one in the wedding party even noticed. They were so tired. It was so hot, whatever. No one paid attention. The only one paying attention was my granddad. And he's very loud, was very loud. He's passed away, but he's very loud. And he heard the priest say, do you take Louise to be your lawfully wedded wife? And he says, no. (laughs) And everyone just, all of a sudden, they're all paying attention. And everyone sort of stops and looks around. And then the priest, he doesn't really know what to do. And my granddad says, I'll take Laverna. I'm not taking Louise. I'm not objecting to marrying my wife. I'm objecting to marrying my sister-in-law. And so they got it straight in the end. I had a friend, uh, one of my best friends from high school. On his wedding day, without giving too many details, on his wedding day, about two hours before the wedding, the minister that was to do the service found out that the bride was not the faith he, the minister, thought she was and refused to do the service. And so they were two hours from a wedding scrambling for a minister. That's something going wrong at a wedding, okay? I was at a wedding just a couple of weeks ago. They got to the part of the ceremony where they were exchanging rings and they looked at the maid of honor and they said, do you have the ring for the groom? And you know what she said? No, I don't have it. And they looked around and they scrambled. They couldn't find it. And so they just kind of pretended. Okay, pretend you're putting the ring on there. And they went on. And it was okay. But lots of things can go wrong at weddings. As I'm telling these stories, you're thinking about weddings you've been to. And you're thinking, oh, yeah, I got a doozy. This one time, I was at a wedding. Well, here's a wedding. And it's a wedding where something went wrong. And into that wrong, Jesus steps in and he performs a sign that makes for a great children's Sunday school lesson. It's a great picture to color, right? A great story to tell. But sometimes we may be confused, like, what's up with this story? Like, I understand healing paralytics. I understand raising Lazarus from the dead. But turning a bunch of water 
into wine. What I want to do this morning, I thought about this a lot this week, how to approach the text. I just kind of want to walk through the story. And I think if we can explain a few details along the way and make sense of some of the pieces of this story, by the time we get to the end, the big idea is really, really clear. And so we'll start with this. For Jews in the first century, weddings were a major community event. They typically lasted an entire week. Okay, This was a bigger deal at the get-go than our two-hour, one-hour, 30-minute, whatever weddings. This was a big, big event. Look at John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. It says, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And I just want you to note that later in the story, John is going to tell us again in verse 11 that it happened at Cana in Galilee. He tells us twice. He really wants us to understand. You understand? The first sign happened at Cana in Galilee. So just file that away. There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So Mary is there. She's not named Mary in the story. It's just Jesus' mom was there. And Jesus was invited. And Jesus' disciples were with him. And so some scholars look at this and they say, well, Mary was probably helping. She's probably helping with the food. She's probably helping to carry out the events of the week. Some scholars look at this and say, no, I I think Nathaniel was the connecting point. If you back up and you read about Nathaniel, he was from Cana, very small community. Maybe he was the reason they all got invited. We don't really know. What we know is Mary was there, Jesus was invited, and his disciples were there. Who were the disciples at this point? If you back up and read, you know it's Andrew, Andrew's brother Simon Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and at least one unnamed disciple. And last week I told you that I think that's John, the author of this gospel. So you got Jesus' mom and Jesus. Not all of his disciples, not the 12 apostles, but the guys he's called so far. And they're there at this wedding. Now look at verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Running out of wine was a major embarrassment for people who valued hospitality and feared shame. In an Eastern culture, one of the highest, in fact, in some places, the highest value is showing hospitality. Whether it's planned or unplanned, you are expected to show hospitality to guests. In some places, in some cultures, it was even enshrined in law that you had to do it. I read a number of scholars this week, and they said, at this time in Jewish history, there would have been provisions in the law. I'm not talking the Old Testament. I'm just talking about Jewish law in the day. There would have been provision in the law that would have allowed the bride's family to sue the groom in a situation like this. And we hear that, and we're like, oh, come on an innocent mistake, they miscalculated, somebody drank too much. Who, I, there's lots of explanations here. And for these people, it just wasn't a small deal. It wasn't a, a silly deal. It was a big deal. Showing hospitality was a major, major cultural expectation. Being able to provide for your guests that you've invited to come for a week was a major, major deal. And not being able to do that brought shame on your family. It wasn't just like you felt awkward about it. It was that this cover of shame would be 
laid on top of you and your family. You weren't able to do the most simplest of things in providing for your guests. Now, I've never hosted a wedding or been part of a wedding where something like this happened. I will tell you a couple of weeks ago, I had volunteered for a group of pastors to meet here at the church. There was a group of guys that needed to get together, and I was invited to this meeting, and I said, look, we're kind of in the middle. Why don't we meet here? There was about 40 guys that signed up, and I said, we'll provide lunch. We'll host the meeting, invite everyone to come here, be here at 1130. We'll provide lunch. We contacted somebody in town we used for catering. We said, hey, we need to order food. They said, you got to order in 12s, groups of 12. And I said, well, i got 40 coming, so I guess I need four 12s. And we ordered chicken fajitas for 48. Lunch is, is coming. The guys are starting to trickle in. I'm waiting on the caterer to show up. And somebody walks in carrying one pan. And they said, I'm here. Fajitas for four. I tried to be nice. I tried so hard to be nice. Corey tried to be nice. He was there. We tried our hardest. We tried not to say anything mean. But that was a little bit embarrassing. I mean, this had been planned for weeks. Everyone had been invited. I'd said, hey, come to our place. We'll host you. We'll feed you lunch. It's on us. Just show up. We'll take care of everything else. People had asked me, do you need help with this? No, 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 no. We don't need help. We got it. It's good. Fajitas for four. We just went down the street to Jason's. And our friend at Jason's Deli gave us the back room and everyone ate. But I'll be honest with you. It sort of stung my pride a little bit to hang around the church and wait for these people to show up one after another and say, yeah, we messed it up. They messed it up. Someone messed it up. I don't know. It's messed up. We're not eating here. We're going down the street. What? What? I thought we were eating. Yeah, I know, I know, I'm sorry. But in the end, it really wasn't that big of a deal. I wasn't worried that any of the pastors were going to sue me, right? (laughs) Fajitas for four. You can be expecting a call from my lawyer. That didn't happen. I don't feel great shame over the whole ordeal. I just feel like the caterer wrote down four instead of four twelves, and somewhere we had a miscommunication. This was a big deal for these people. This was way worse than fajitas for four and 48 showing up. This is a culture that values hospitality, and they're terrified of bringing shame on their family, and they're not able to provide for their guests. They run out of wine. Look at verse 4 and 5. Mary comes, and she says they have no wine. Verse 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I understand how that sounds to your ears and my ears. When Jesus says, woman, there's not a man in the room who would be dumb enough to talk to his wife or his mother that way in this situation. Dearest mother, what? I mean, we... We know how the game works. No one's going to pipe up and say this. We read this and we think, oh, Jesus, did you not know the fifth commandment? Honor your father and your mother. But I want you to understand that Jesus is not being disrespectful here. Jesus' response to Mary was not disrespectful. 
It was not disrespectful. But Jesus was redefining his relationship with Mary. And I want to try to explain that. Number one, it's not disrespectful. Every linguist you read will go back and say there's plenty of examples in ancient Jewish literature of people talking to women like this. In that culture, I know how it translates. In that culture, in that time, it wasn't disrespectful. In fact, later in this gospel, John chapter 19, Jesus is dying on the cross. His mother is at the foot of the cross, and he's going to call her woman. And he does it in the context of providing for her after he's dead. That's not disrespectful. That's very respectful. In John chapter 4, Jesus is going to be talking with a woman from Samaria at a well. Guess what he calls her? Woman. He's not being mean or hateful to her. That was just how, how they talked to each other. It wasn't disrespectful in any way, shape, or form. At the same time, I want to acknowledge it wasn't a term of endearment. And when Jesus referred to her as woman, there was a bit of a distancing going on. Look, John, as he tells the story, he calls Mary Jesus' mother three times. Mother. He could have said, mother, what does this have to do with me? Instead, he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? And there's a little bit of distancing going on. There's a little bit of redefining the relationship. Jesus is performing this very first sign that sort of launches his ministry, and he's making sure that Mary knows Woman, I'm on a mission from my heavenly Father. You are not in control of that mission. Simon Peter, when you try to tell me that I'm not going to the cross, you are not in control of my mission. You may be the leader of the twelve, you are not in control of my mission. Get behind me, Satan. There's a distancing going on here, and Jesus is redefining the relationship. He has been sent by the Father to seek and to save the lost. And he's just right here at the outset of his ministry, right when he's really going public, he's saying to his mother, you're not in control. I'm going to be respectful. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to provide for you. But you don't get to set the terms of how I carry out my ministry. You are not the one calling the shots. And he's saying that to Mary, and he's saying that for everyone who's listening. Mary is going to have to approach Jesus just like everyone else in this gospel. A sinner who needs to be forgiven. Not as the boss in control. Not as the one behind the scenes pulling the strings and, and calling the shots. But as somebody confessing her sin and trusting in Jesus for salvation. Look at verse 4. Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? Literally what he says is, what to me to you? That's the literal translation. What to me to you? It's a Hebrew idiom. Every language has idioms. Idioms are those parts of language you learn last, and they're the parts that if you don't understand them, you feel like an idiot. Okay? Every language has them. Hebrew had them. Spanish has them. English has them. Here's a few examples, just so you get the idea. Stop beating around the bush. What you mean is get to the point and say what you mean. But if you say that and it's translated literally, somebody thinks, what are, we, are we gardening now? What are we talking about? That's not, that's not what it's about. I'm going to hit the sack. You're going to punch a sack? What? No, I'm going to bed. Oh, why didn't you say so? I did. It's an idiom. Don't spill the beans. I'm on the fence. We're not talking about pinto beans. We're not talking about scaling a fence. You understand what those phrases mean because you're a native speaker. 
you understand that the phrase itself means something different than the individual words. Jesus looks at his mom. He says, woman, what to me, to you? It's an idiom. It doesn't really translate well. And what he's saying is, how does this involve me? Why do you think that I should be a part of this? Why are you coming to me with this particular issue? It's interesting. He ends up doing something about it. But he wants Mary to think, why is it that you're bringing this to me? And then he says something fascinating. He looks at his mom, woman, what to me to you? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Jesus knew that he came to die And this was not his quote-unquote hour. When you read through the Gospel of John, we're going to see this phrase multiple times. Jesus has an hour. He's talking about his death. And until that hour comes, no one is going to lay a hand on Jesus. That's John 7. They're trying to arrest Jesus. No one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. It wasn't his time. Look at John 17.1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. This is just hours before the crucifixion. And Jesus knows at this point something has happened in his life and he knows now it's the time. This is why I came. Now my hour has come. Look what we read in Galatians 4. This is how Paul explains it. Paul says, when the fullness of time had come, when the right hour came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus knew that he came on a rescue mission to seek and to save the lost, to give his life as a ransom for many, to be the good shepherd who would lay down his life for the sheep. That was his purpose. He didn't come to perform signs and tricks and miracles. And he just wants to make clear with his disciples and with his mother right out of the gate, this is not the reason I came, to be the fixer at weddings gone wrong. That's not why I'm here. People have all sorts of answers about Jesus and why he, why he lived and why he taught and what his ministry was about. Oh, he, he taught us how to love one another. He taught us how to be kind to each other. He taught us how to be forgiving. He taught us how to live together. Look, Jesus came to this earth not to perform miracles, not to cast out demons, not to teach in synagogues or to teach on the hillside. He came to die for sinners. And everything else he did along the way points to that reality. And he's just telling everyone, right? This is his very first sign. I'm going to do something great, but you need to understand my hour is not right now. This is not the real reason I came. What you see is about to be amazing, but this isn't the end game, a miracle. The end game is that I'm going to die for my people and I'm going to restore them to a relationship with God. How much of this did Mary understand? When she comes and says, they're out of wine, and he says, woman, what to me to you, my hour has not yet come. I don't know exactly how much she understood how many of the puzzle pieces she had put together, but I know that she took this gentle rebuke perfectly in stride. I know that in verse 3, she comes to Jesus as a mother, and I know that in verse 5, she comes to Jesus as a believer. Look what she says in verse 5. 
do whatever he tells you. Can I just suggest that you memorize that verse? And anytime you need to give someone advice, you just quote that verse. Right? Just dispense with all your wisdom from your parents and your grandparents and all the little glitchy sayings that we like to throw around and just tell people, just do what Jesus tells you to do. Whatever Jesus tells you to do, that's what you need to do. She gives the best advice that anyone has ever given to any person. You cannot top this. What should I do in this situation? Just do what Jesus tells you to do. I don't mean in a mystical sense, like you just try to pray about it and Jesus is going to beam some message down. I mean, open up the Bible, read what Jesus says and do what he tells you to do. No one has ever given better advice than Mary gave to the disciples and the servants in John 2, 5. Do whatever he tells you to do. Look at verse 6. There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out, take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And he called to the bridegroom, and we'll get to verse 10 here in just a minute. Look, you can get online, you can read commentaries, you can find all sorts of not-so-interesting debates about the details of those verses. Why were there six? Why not five? Why not seven? Why not ten? Why six? You can find people debating, why were they made of stone? Why not clay? Why not some kind of pottery? Why is it important that they were stoned? You can find people debating, what are these purification rites? Why were they doing this? What were they doing this? In all the debates about the details, I don't want you to miss the big point of this this little section of verses. These stone water jars held water for purification rites. They were there to prepare the guest for the real celebration. This was at the front door. When you come in and your hands are dirty and your feet are dirty, before you go in, And before you go into the party, you're going to wash your hands in this water. And there is a ceremony to it, but that's basically what you're doing. You're washing your hands, and you're washing your feet off with this water. I don't want you to miss the fact that this water is kind of gross. You understand? Like when we go to Kenya, we're about to send a team to Kenya. They always circle us around. They want us in one big giant circle. So we sit in this big giant circle wherever we're eating. And somebody comes around with a bowl of water and a little scoop. And you hold your hands out and they pour it up. And it runs over your hands and you wash it off. And by the time you get sort of around, like everyone's kind of done that with their hands. And, you know, you feel okay about it. But nobody then takes that water and drinks it. The Americans don't do that. The Kenyans don't do that. Like, that's used water. That gets you ready for the meal. That's what John's talking about when he says there's these jars and they hold a bunch of water and they're for purification rites. As the people are coming in, they're washing their hands in this water. They're preparing themselves for the real party. And Jesus says, fill them up. And then he turns them into wine. This is not Dasani from the fridge. It's not your RO filter. It's gross water. And there's a lesson here. When Jesus does the miracle in this way, there's a lesson. And the lesson is everything in the old covenant was preparing you for the new. 
The old covenant was never an end in and of itself. Genesis to Malachi. That wasn't the end game for anyone at any point. It was all pointing you forward. And here's people. They've been preparing for the feast. And then they go into the real party. And Jesus is sort of symbolically saying, like, the preparation is over. It's time for the party to begin. We don't need this stuff anymore. This was just to get you ready. I just want you to think about some of the lessons you can draw here. Every detail showing you, every detail showing you, Jesus is the one that all of the old was pointing to. You can just jot some of these down. They're not on your notes. You can look up Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 is about the new covenant. And tucked away in Jeremiah 31 is a promise that in the new covenant age, wine will flow. Jesus, ushering in the new covenant, his very first sign, makes from nasty water about 150 gallons of top quality wine. The details are not just coincidental. He's showing everyone there, this is the new. The old has gone, and this is the new. All these ceremonies in the old covenant, as they would wash their hands and do these pourings and different things, all intended to remind them that they were sinful, dirty people, right? Pointing them forward, showing them, you need a Savior. And Jesus is saying, okay, we're done with that. We don't need to do those washings anymore. You don't need the reminder because they were all pointing you forward to me, and I'm here. This is the fulfillment. Jot down Psalm 104, verse 15. It makes a connection between wine and joy. And you can debate that all you want. What does that mean back then? What does it mean for us today? But it connects those two ideas. Wine and joy, they go together. And Jesus is is ministering to these people. They have no joy. They have no true lasting joy. And he's giving it to them in abundance. He brings joy. These jars of water get the guests ready for the party. And Jesus is saying to them, I'm the bridegroom. I'm here. The real party's about to get started. Look, the bridegroom was the one responsible to have all the wine there in the first place. He can't do his job. And Jesus steps in and he says, I can do it. Do you see the picture of what that is for you and me? God says, here's my law, and we fall short. We can't do it. And Jesus steps into our place, and he says, I can do it. I can obey where you failed. I can do what you were not able to do, and I can die for your sins. Every detail pointing you forward that Jesus is the bridegroom come to bring in this new covenant. And look, this miracle is sort of like his coming out party. It's kind of like the moment where he really says to everyone for the very first time, I'm the one. All of the old was pointing to me. Where does he do it? Bethlehem? No. Somewhere in Judea? Jerusalem? Bethany? No. He does it in flyover country. In a small village. In Cana. John tells you twice. I want you to understand this happened in Cana in Galilee, of all the places you could do it, this one gets the least amount of attention. No one even paid attention to the fact that he did it. The only people who knew about the miracle were servants, and they were servants who lived in Cana of Galilee. In Jesus' day, it didn't get much lower than being a servant in Cana. 
You lived in a small, dumpy town, and you were the bottom of the totem pole. And who were the ones who knew what Jesus had done? It was the servants. John tells us, the master did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. He reveals his glory in a backwater, redneck, hillbilly town to a bunch of servants. And in the end, he doesn't even get credit for the wine. Do you see the irony in that? We tell the story, we say, Jesus, you did such a great thing. When it happened, no one knew he did it. They just sort of looked around and they said, huh, more wine. I guess they had a stash in the back. We're breaking it out. Let the party continue. He didn't get any credit. He didn't get any attaboys. He didn't get any fist bumps, high fives. Right? The, the family, the wedding party, they didn't get to send him a thank you note. Thank you for bailing us out. He did it in obscurity, and he didn't even get the credit. But that's okay. He didn't perform signs to impress people. Not in Cana, not in Odessa. Not trying to impress you. He didn't perform the sign because his mom told him to do it. He made that very clear to her. He didn't perform the sign just because he felt sorry for this couple getting married. He didn't even perform the sign just to liven up the party. He performed the sign to reveal his glory so that we might believe. Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. John 2.11 This first sign, first sign that he did at Cana in Galilee, he manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Don't get lost in the weeds in this story. Don't get lost in the debates about fermentation level. What did he make here? Was it Welch's or was it uh, hard liquor or was it somewhere in between? Don't get lost in that. That's not the point. Don't get lost in the part about why did they save the good wine to the end? Was it because everyone was drunk or was it because half the people had gone home later in the week? Why did, don't get lost in that. That's not the point. That's not the point. It's not the point that he's trying to impress anyone. It's not the point that he has pity on someone. It's not the point that he's doing what his mother wants him to do. It's not the point that he's out for his own attention. He's revealing his glory. He's showing his disciples who he is. And their response is what our response ought to be. It's believing in him. Believing. You're the bridegroom. We're the bride. You have come to gather us. You have come to die for us us. You have come to purchase us with your blood. This sign is not just about wine at a wedding. This sign is about who you are and why you've come. And you are the one who's come to usher in this new covenant, this new relationship between God and his people. Look, I need you to understand, we don't deserve to be invited to the party. Right? There's going to be a party in the end, and it's going to be unlike any party. It's going to be a wedding party. The book of Revelation describes it. It is going to be the greatest party that has ever happened in the history of the world. You don't deserve an invitation. You're not worthy to attend. You should be left off the guest list. Jesus came that you could be invited, that you could be a part, that you could be at that final celebration. He is the groom who came to gather his bride 
for this final celebration in the end where this new relationship between God and his people is fully realized and fully enjoyed. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to be smart enough. You don't have to pay him back. You just have to believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And you look at this sign and you don't get caught up in the sign, but it points you forward and you believe the truth about Jesus. That's the challenge this morning. Will you see his glory in this sign and will you believe?